Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and today we're going to review the Mac Studio. We're going to talk about the controversial studio display, plus a bunch of updates across Apple's software and services. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors at Coda.io, Trade Coffee, Collide, and Truebill. I'll be talking about those in a moment. And joining me, my friend across the pond, William Gallagher. How's it going, William? Hello, hello. Oh, uh, sorry. One second. I've left something on my iPad. I will just reach over through universal control and drag it back. There you go. <laughs> I'm happy now. You were saying. Oh, okay. Now, I have i don't know if I've heard from, from you on universal control, but have you been using it fairly often? Uh, excessively, actually. Really? Yeah. Really? I really have. Actually, I swear, I, I tried it out because you've got to try it out. You've got to see, does this really work? And you look at it and think, this is amazing. I'm never going to use it. I mean, because if you try to drag documents <laughs> around, well, aren't they already saved in iCloud? So they're already on all the devices. And if you try to drag a photo from the iPad to the Mac, well, you can only do it from the kind of, um, you know, the thumbnail gallery. If you're in photos on the iPad, you can't drag the photo. I'm thinking, oh, this is just, it's nice, it's fun. But then I was doing something and unconsciously, the iPad was next to me and I kind of flicked the cursor over, did whatever I had to do, came back. And so I thought, oh, hang on, I did that completely unthinking it was like already normal and so now wow. yeah i pop machines together sometimes i have you know my i have a 49 inch monitor and i have the ipad on one side the macbook pro on the other because you can't get enough real estate on the screen clearly um and just <laughs> use them all i was gonna say your your 50 inch wide monitor is still not enough screen real estate i know let's you need an ipad on the end <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm gonna need a bigger That's desk nice. That's what it's going to be. That's what it is. Well, we're going to talk about more about displays in a minute. I want to give some shout outs to our five-star reviews this past week. The Best Panda on USA gave us five stars. <laughs> MH Chung in Singapore. And It's Nike from Cambodia. International listeners, which is awesome. Thank you for those reviews. Coco PTM and my Bornheimer from the USA. Ronin with one as the eye from Great Britain. I think you and he are good friends, right? Yeah, one in the eye. That's a great description That's right. of that name. Oh, I like that. That's I'm right. having that. I just have W gallagher on twitter and everything i feel quite dull compared to the best panda i am feeble i know, aren't I? I know. so i'll change it good names i'll be the second best panda <laughs> that's what i'll go for <laughs> the second <laughs> the penultimate panda the pen yeah we'll see <laughs> anyway <laughs> okay. jacob kevin's from great britain also jacob kevin's and akz idens akazidens anyway he's from sweden now, you might like this. He said when William's on the show, it's a six-star show. <laughs> so those, those Swedes, they, they must really like you over there, apparently. Hang on. Do I owe you money? I could, uh, is this what's going on? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's, yeah. No, no. Okay. No money necessary. That's, he, he said it, not me. Okay. Well, I have a new favorite country then, Sweden. Yay. The whole country. Oh, because of that one go. comment. The whole country. If I could pronounce the name, I'd be more specific, but Akkad Zizans, you're a star. Thank you. Well, thank you all to those reviews. Keep them coming. We appreciate it. I wanted to do some follow-up. Last week, Wes and I were talking about the icons that are found on the iPhone SE screen wrap when you take it out of the box. And actually, I, Justine, said in her video, that's where I got it from, that couldn't remember if this is just an iPhone SE thing or others. And I was so surprised, many, many people tweeted their photos at me, DM'd and emailed, and they kept the paper that was on their iPhone 13 Pro and their iPhone 12 Pro. And it turns out those little icons that designate, here's the power button, here are the volume buttons, here's even where you charge the phone. Those little icons are actually on the Pro model phones as well. 
So on the little screen covers, when you open up your iPhone 13 Pro or 12 Pro, those little icons were there to kind of show where you do the stuff on the phone. So I thought that was fascinating. Thank you to everyone who sent that in. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I don't see it. I guess in my haste to open a new phone, I just rip it right off. Same here. I mean, with, you know, taste and decorum, but haste and speed as well. Yeah, yeah. I no, The things you miss, that's the level of detail Apple goes to. That's really impressive, yeah. isn't it? I mean, wasted on me, clearly, and you, clearly, right. but otherwise, <laughs> impressive. Yeah, and now, now I'm curious. A couple of people said they think it started with the 12 models, and maybe the iPhone 11 and earlier did not have those little icons. I just, I could not remember for the life of me ever seeing those. So I'm curious, come iPhone 14, be looking for those little icons and uh, take a picture for historical purposes to see if that's something they still include. One other piece of follow-up, listener Bill Shearer actually emailed me and one of the new features on TVOS that we talked about last week was the ability to connect to captive networks at a hotel. Previously, it was very difficult to get an Apple TV on a hotel network, really impossible without the captive feature that's now been added in TVOS 15.4. But he said he traveled a lot. He would bring his Apple TV. And what he would do, I don't know why I never really thought to do this. He would literally call the hotel and ask for the IT department. And the IT department would then add the IP or the MAC address, whatever it is of the Apple TV device. Hmm. And the Apple TV was then able to bypass whatever captive screen and just be connected to the hotel Wi-Fi permanently. And he said whenever he traveled, that's what he did. And he was able to use his Apple TV and hotel rooms all over the place. So good on you, Bill. Never even thought to do that. I have to say, I don't really understand what a captive uh, network is. And I uh, just this week, I got a Kindle and it says you could set it up by using your iPhone. And when I tried that, it said, yeah, no, you can't because that Wi-Fi network is a captive <laughs> network and it isn't supported. But if I tried to set up just the Kindle by itself, go straight on that network, everything's fine. So I'm at a loss as to what captive actually means. Can you explain it in short syllables? Yeah, a captive network is usually like a public Wi-Fi or something like a hotel or coffee shop where you can click to the Wi-Fi network. It's usually not password protected. It's open. Mm. But when you connect to it, a window will pop up. Sometimes you have to go to Safari and try to load something and a captive screen will appear. It'll either be like Starbucks or it'll be the hotel brand. And it'll say in order to connect to the Wi-Fi, you have to put in your email address and accept these terms or you have to, you know, put your room number and last name in and then we'll allow you to connect to the free Wi-Fi. And typically it's like, you know, they want your email address to put you on a mailing list, like maybe a coffee shop might do that. Mm. But it's that captive screen where unless you can load a web browsing window and literally click accept and log in or whatever, that you won't be able to connect to the internet on that Wi-Fi network. Your device will see it. The Apple TV will say it's connected, but it won't actually have any internet access because it couldn't load that web page to accept the terms. So now, again, I'm not sure how it works. I haven't been to a hotel yet, but I'm not sure if the Apple TV will now load a web page that allow you to click accept with the Apple TV remote or if it does something else to get past that captive screen. So that's what the feature in 15.4 did. That's very interesting. Thank you. So I don't know if this affected you, William, last week, but Monday, March 21, at the beginning of the week as we record, there's actually a massive Apple service outage. It affected iMessage, iCloud, all the Apple stuff. I noticed a little bit, especially I was iMessaging people at the time and I saw it go to SMS text and I thought all my friends switched to Android and I was very concerned for a moment, but that wasn't the case. It was just an Apple service outage and it was fixed, you know, hour or two later, but pretty widespread for an Apple service outage. But did this affect you at all? Oh no, you were probably done with your workday at this point, right? 
I was actually, I was so engrossed writing a script in final draft that I noticed nothing until I'd done, came out and then everybody was telling me, oh, it's back. Everything's all right again. Oh. I totally missed the entire thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Well, good, <laughs> so, good on you. Powers of concentration, you know. Yeah. Bit rare. Got to boast about it when it happens. But yes. There you go. All right. Were you in the middle of things? Did it hold you up apart from suddenly deciding that maybe you've made the wrong choice in life and should get Android like your friends appeared to? <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice too much. I think there was some weird calendar stuff I was experiencing trying to set up events or whatever. But maybe iCloud Drive. I don't know. Monday is, a, is an admin work day for me usually. So I'm not heavy like trying to access Apple TV or you know, Apple Fitness. I know you do Apple Fitness every other hour, but uh, that's you know, that's just me. Yeah, I've actually used up all of the workouts Apple TV. They've, Apple actually phoned me saying, can you just slow down a bit? We can't keep up. Um, oh, but, you know, wow, that's you something. Do okay, <laughs> so, very yeah. good, very good. Outage is over, so everything should be uh, good now. But, you know, Apple has a status page for their all their services. And so if you're ever wondering, is there an outage? Have my friends switched to Android? I'll put a link to that outage page. You can always check on Apple's website and see what services, if any, are, are having issues. Now, big news, Apple Wallet actually launched the driver's license and digital ID feature in exactly one state, Arizona. I mean, and, and this feature was apparently big enough where Tim Cook even tweeted about it. This was announced last year at WWDC about digital ID and driver's license. There were a bunch of states announced to support it. But the first one that you can actually do it in is Arizona here in the United States. And so I am announcing that I will be moving to Arizona strictly for this one. No, that's not true. I'm not doing that. This is a, it's a weird situation because Apple announced Arizona, Georgia, Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah would all be supporting Apple Wallet driver's license. They actually announced some additional states in this most recent announcement, Colorado, Hawaii, Mississippi, Ohio, and Puerto Rico are going to get access to this digital driver's license and Apple Wallet, but unknown the timeline, which is mm. kind of troubling. Now, some people are blaming Apple, like, why aren't they rolling this out? Why can't they provide more information? But I also think that the states, at least here in America, really are slow yeah. on this uptick because I've been checking the Florida Smart ID website and this will only apply to people who live in Florida, but I'll put the link to it. But their website said, November 2021, we're launching digital IDs. Mm. And literally nothing has happened. I've emailed them four to five times asking for early access and just nothing. So I really feel like the states specifically here in America are dragging their feet and just not knowing what to do with it. But that's what I think. I'm sure you're right. I didn't work in local government, but I worked with local government people and speed was not a high priority there. You can <laughs> imagine Apple is really pushing to get this out everywhere. So it's, I mean, it's a big thing to adopt in a state. I'm not uh, saying it's a trivial right. thing, but uh, I still think, yeah, I think you're right. The holdup is at the States. Yeah. So hopefully soon, again... This, we're going to be hitting WWDC pretty soon this year, just a few months away. So I'd be curious what updates they would have for it. Speaking of their expansion, though, of cards and such, Apple Card might soon be coming to your neck of the woods, William. Oh, yes. It was announced that Apple has acquired Credit Kudos. That's a lot of k 
sounds right there. Apple acquired <laughs> Credit Kudos, a UK firm for credit card processing. There you go. And so it was a uh, actually a credit. Uh, what was it? What was Kudos? You're you're over there. What was Credit Kudos? Do you know? Well, nobody had ever heard of it till now. Oh, okay. But uh, <laughs> as I understand it, what it does, it it's actually it's not for individuals like me or you. It's for banks. It helps bank with their checking, their verification, the uh, credit status, credit score checking on uh, potential applicants and things. Gotcha. So I mean, what else could it possibly be before? But are you international car but goldman sachs is international i don't understand why apple isn't just rolling it out with them but nonetheless oh, since the moment i heard this i have been typing with crossed fingers everything <laughs> everything with crossed fingers yes that apple card i mean when i got this mac studio i'm using to record right now <gasps> apple cash back was pretty nice on that i'm just saying you get three percent oh. cash back so, oh goodness yeah. i forgot about cash back oh yeah and you got it the mac studio since we Previously, last time you and I spoke, it was on its way, That's right. but now it's there and, and it's fantastic, right? Is it? Oh, yes. Well, we're going to be going more in depth in a moment because I, I have some thoughts, oh, but yeah, it said it was delayed. And then like day of launch day, what was it? March 18, last Friday, it uh, showed up. It like updated, de like delivery updated overnight. And it said, just kidding, coming today. <laughs> and it did. It did. And it's sitting, it's sitting right here. The thing is uh, chonky. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big Mac, no pun intended with the McDonald's branding, a TM <laughs> <laughs> trademark. <laughs> but uh, I want to talk about that in a minute because I, I have some thoughts. Excellent. This episode is brought to you by Collide. Listen, Collide is this incredible service that will automatically send messages to your team or employees about security, steps to make their devices more secure, and they do it right inside of Slack. And you as the business owner or IT professional don't have to do anything. It's completely automated. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices. Listen, I've worked at organizations that use mobile device platforms to really lock down devices so employees can do no wrong. But when you do that, it can be frustrating for employees because they don't have full access to their hardware, their phone, their computer, their Windows or Mac machine. And so there's frustration when they try to get things done. Well, Collide allows them to have the freedom to use their devices, but then also offers those privacy and security recommendations automatically through Slack. So visit collide.com slash Apple Insider to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash Apple Insider and enter your email and you'll be prompted to get a free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. Collide understands that end users are IT admins most significant and untapped resource. They're the key to solving some of the most challenging security issues. Whether that's instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, find plain two-factor backup codes and teach end users how to store them. Come on, you all know that person. They've saved those backup codes in a text file, like on their desktop or something. Well, Collide can message them and say, hey, saw you save this. Uh, you probably don't want to put it there because it's not secure. And it can actually help employees uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. So you can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices totally for free. Try it for free for 14 days, unlimited number of devices. No credit card is even required for the free trial when you go to collide.com slash Apple Insider. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash Apple Insider. Try it for free for 14 days on an unlimited number of devices. Our thanks to Collide for sponsoring this episode and our friends at Trade Coffee. Listen, you might not realize this, but 90% of the coffee from a grocery store is actually stale. Yes, that's right. It's been sitting there for a while. You don't know how it's been roasted. So your coffee needs an upgrade. 
Rather than rebuying the same old beans that you get at your grocery store, get something from Trade Coffee. They'll send you something freshly roasted and literally guaranteed to love. Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. And they ship it free to you as often as you'd like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd or just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences. You take a coffee quiz to get started and they'll recommend bags and Trade Coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they will replace it for free. That's honestly my favorite part of Trade Coffee because I'm a cold brew brewer at home. That's the kind of coffee I drink. I do nitro cold brew. And when you take that test, Trade asks all the right questions. They ask me whether I'm making cold brew, whether I like things dark or light roast, and they sent me the most incredible beans. Actually, one of my recent favorites is the Alma coffee beans that I use when I roast my coffee and it's excellent. Trade has been featured by the New York Times, Wire, GQ, and has delivered over 5 million bags of coffee. Their subscription is no hassle. You can skip shipments, change your frequency, or cancel at any time. And for our listeners right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash Apple Insider. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. So to get started, take their quiz like I did at drinktrade.com slash Apple Insider and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash Apple Insider for $20 off your first three bags. Our thanks to Trade Coffee for sponsoring this episode. Apple actually announced some big updates to Apple Podcasts, specifically for podcast creators. It's going to be offering more analytics in the Podcasts Connect dashboard. The metric that they're specifically surfacing is followers. You know, the, the whole terminology around podcasting has been in flux about what is a subscriber, follower, all that. But in Apple's parlance, you like that? You like that word, parlance? Very good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, they're word for when you follow a podcast so that when new episodes come out, you might get notified, they might automatically download. Their terminology is a follower. And the reason why they say follower in past years, we have said they subscribe to a show is because subscribers now implies that they are paid. Like for the Apple Insider show, you can become a paid subscriber for $5 a month. You get an ad free version of the show every week. And so a subscriber is paid. A follower is just someone who follows it for free, any show. And so podcast creators will now be able to see their follower count in addition to downloads and listening time. It's a helpful metric because if you have a ton of followers, but not as many downloads, that is would be concerning or vice versa. Maybe you have on parity followers and downloads or that analytics is going to be helpful for podcasters to kind of see what's going on. And they also released another article saying how Apple puts shows in the top charts for Apple Podcasts. That's usually been a long time like mystery, like how do you chart in Apple Podcasts? And they released a whole uh, description about it. And honestly, five-star ratings are a factor, but larger factors to charting in Apple Podcasts includes people who finish listening to an episode. Mm. So if someone actually listens to 100% of your episode, that means that they are more invested in the show. Uh, That will lead to higher ranking in the charts how often people listen, like if you have a weekly show, do they listen weekly or less so? And so there's a lot of other factors they actually use in that charting. So I'll put a link to that article that talks about the podcast charts and also to the updates to followers. They also have a jumpstart program. So if you need help starting a podcast or if you're a business and you want Apple's direct help on how to launch a subscription and a channel, they actually have a new jumpstart where you can sign up and Apple will actually help you kind of give you one-on-one coaching 
to starting a podcast. I thought that was pretty interesting. It makes sense. I just, I remember, I was last year, pre-COVID, however long ago that was, um, I did a job where I ended up interviewing um, a woman in the UK, I'm sorry, I blanked on her name, she had a really good company name as well, who trains podcast people. And she went through all of the various podcast platforms and all of the information you do and don't get to help you grow, you think. And Apple was just the worst by far. It was not returning any details of followers that she could get to and all the rest were doing so much that she could give to advertisers. Well, I mean, I use a YouTube channel and I pay absolutely no attention at all to any of the statistics with it because I just, <laughs> I like it. And it's, I'm not about growing it. It's just me talking to you, you talking to me, having a good time. And it happens to be growing very nicely. I suppose if I were being sponsored for it, I'd have to report data like that. And now through this type of thing, you can on Apple Podcasts as well as other places. So it's a good thing. All oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And advertisers always want as much data as you can provide, obviously. So more data is good. Oh. I did think that maybe this was unique to Apple, but that is actually incorrect. The second biggest podcast app right now, people listening the most, Apple Podcasts is still number one. The most people listen in that app. Second is Spotify. Probably due to all the exclusive deals and everything Spotify has been doing. Wow. But I was curious if Spotify offered the same kind of data. And in fact, they do. They actually show you how many people follow your show in Spotify versus how many download and how many streams. They even provide this statistic, which hopefully Apple will adopt this as well. But they actually give you the number of how many people started your episode, but maybe didn't listen more than like a minute. Mm. And so they actually distinguish between streams, which is people listen to 60 seconds or more of an episode and starts how many people listen to less than 60 seconds. And, you know, as a longtime podcaster, it's a little disheartening, like to see how many people yes. quit after the first 60 seconds of listening to a podcast. You know, podcasting has been a medium where people get more invested. People feel like they know the host. There's like long-term relationships there. But with all this kind of data-driven metrics, it now feels a little bit more like TikTok and YouTube, where it's like you have to catch someone's attention in the first 10 seconds of a podcast episode. Otherwise, they'll just stop listening. And now even Spotify distinguishes between starts and streams. And there is a disparity. There is like a not insignificant number of people who will listen to a few seconds, but then not listen to the rest of the episode. So I don't know, William, maybe we should do some jokes at the top of the show or something to keep people keep people invested. Okay. Um, man walks into a bar. Ow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's, that's all I've got. All right. And you're just looking at me now. I got one. It's, this is a one-liner. Yeah. You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard okay. that chuckle. Uh, I heard it. I heard it. It worked. I'll put that at the top of the show. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Uh, Groucho Marx said that once. Oh, um, that's pretty I think that good. one works better when you're written down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sorry, my mind is actually on that whole starts and streams thing because there's one podcast, not a technology one, won't name it. It's very good. It has a very interesting guest every single time. But I have learned to just skip the first two and a half to three minutes because it's the most fatuously irritating <laughs> bit of the two presenters talking to each other about how great the guest is going to be. Just skip to there. And you're into the guest bit, and it's great. So um, 
I skipped this. I never listened to even the opening second of it. I'm straight there. I wonder how that data is recorded. But is that a an American late night talk show host? No, it isn't. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it's a film podcast. I won't ask you to reveal yours, but I listen to every once in a while when there's a a guest I'm interested in, the Conan O'Brien podcast, huh. and he you know he interviews some pretty interesting people. The interview is usually like 15 minutes in. And I I usually just skip to the interview. Yeah. So I don't know how that's reported, but oh, uh, you tell me yours. I'll tell you mine. There's okay. a, a Mission Impossible fan podcast called Light the Fuse. What? They have amazing access to great people, but skip the opening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, whoever it is that makes that great title. Well, William, you might have led me down a rabbit hole. I didn't even know there were such things as Mission Impossible fan casts. What? Oh, yeah. Then uh, 150 or more episodes, interviews with uh, writers, directors. I think the only person they haven't got on yet so far is Tom Cruise, but they've got everybody else you can think of. Wow. And a minute-by-minute analysis of some of the things. Since I like those films, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I I love those films too. I'm feeling pleased to tell you guilty about dissing the start. So let's just all listen to it, but not say where we found out. Okay? Okay, very good. (laughs) Okay, very good. So one rumor that came out this past week, just want to cover Ross Young. He is the display analyst. He typically, when it comes to displays and for hardware, has been fairly accurate. He said Apple may be developing a 15-inch MacBook Air to come out soon-ish, you know, no release that we know of. But I thought this was interesting because Wes and I last week talked about, hey, maybe Apple should make a larger display iPad, but not Pro, like just make a bigger display. And I think Neelai from The Verge talks a lot about this. If you give people an option at a cheaper price point to get something with a small screen or a big screen, people will always go towards the bigger screen, at least the mass market. You know, the iPhone minis have been a little bit uh, indicative of that because even though everyone says they love the mini size, in the mass market, they just don't sell as well as the larger screens. And the savings of mini versus iPhone 13 regular is not really significant enough, I guess, to steer people towards the mini. And people usually go with the normal size, the larger screen iPhone. And I think if Apple were to release a 15-inch MacBook Air, I think that would be a big market. You know, you see a lot of cheap, inexpensive, large screen Windows PCs and Windows laptops. People like big screens. And if people have one computer in their house, no external displays, you know, it's just the one device they use to watch stuff and to stream stuff, and also the one device they use to do their work, I think people would be interested in a large screen, inexpensive Apple laptop like the MacBook Air. What do you think? You're quite convincing there. When I first heard, I thought, yeah, this is a guy who knows about displays. How does he know what machine it's going into? Maybe he's right about the display, wrong about the machine. Now, I don't know. I'm trying to see how Apple would position this uh, because it feels like 15 inches if you're not into the technology and i think the screen size is a very clear divisor between the different models of it it's a bigger one it's more expensive it's got pro in it it's a smaller one it isn't and it hasn't uh this one would kind of disrupt the product lineup but is that bad Mm -hmm. only if you're putting them on the shelf i suppose yeah i mean i could see like 13 inch 15 inch macbook air And then when you get to the MacBook Pro, you have 14-inch, 16-inch. And so you still have larger screens, quote-unquote, available on the Pro devices. But if you don't want the power, you can still get a larger screen. And that's long been one of the issues with Apple's product lineups, whether it's the iPad, the iMac, and the MacBook Air. If you want a larger screen, you have to get the Pro models of things, or you have to get the more 
Obviously, it would be more expensive being a larger display, but it's also additional expense because they're usually faster processors or the base models usually start higher with higher specs. And I think it would be good to give people a choice of if you want just the base model specs, you don't care about speed or any of that, but you just want a big screen and you, you don't care about promotion, you don't care about any of that stuff, like here, here's a 15 inch. You know, Apple used to make 17 inch laptops. Those things were like mm. boats, like surfboards. You could just yes. ride those things. Since, you know, the 16 inch MacBook Pro is the biggest screen you can get. And again, that is a very pro device. There is no 16 inch, you know, consumer level laptop. So I'd be in favor of this. I think there would be a lot of people who would uh, jump on something like this. There's talk, isn't there, that the next range of iPhones, the iPhone 14, will include a large screen one that isn't pro. That sounds exactly the same. That fits. The yep. logic fits there, if it's true. It does fit. So we'll see if that, again, rumors were that updated MacBook Air would have a design refresh, possibly this fall with an M2 chip as Apple starts their next cycle of Apple Silicon chips. So we'll see. We'll see if 15-inch MacBook Air is in the cards. I wanted to highlight this article. This was written by Sebastian DeWitt, who works on the team of Looks.Camera. They're makers of the Halide app for iPhone. I actually had the team on the Apple Insider show a while ago. The three of them came on and we did an interview. It was a lot of fun. But Sebastian DeWitt actually had a very long and detailed article talking about the processing of the iPhone and how the lenses and the cameras on the iPhone 13 Pro are incredible pieces of hardware but sometimes the processing and the software gets in the way, especially he has like some examples of low light photography. You can see smoothing and graininess, and sometimes it will look more like a painting almost and less like a picture as Apple tries to reduce the noise in some of those images. He even has images comparing like the iPhone 10 and 10s and 11 to the 13. Talks about each lens individually on the iPhone 13 Pro. Lots of picture examples from the lenses. And, he, you know, he's an incredible photographer. He has some awesome pictures that he has captured with the iPhone 13 Pro cameras. But I thought it was a fascinating article. It's an interesting discussion on whether or not the processing is maybe a little too much at times. And maybe Apple should give you kind of a little more raw version of the image. But that's why there are great apps out there like Halide, where you can really go raw. You can shoot pro raw. You can shoot raw. And you can kind of reduce the amount of processing your pictures take. So I just wanted to say it was Kind of a fascinating article, and mm. you check it out, listeners, if you're interested in the cameras. I'll read that. Now, this next piece of news was interesting. Apple actually stopped rentals and purchases on Google TV and Android TV from their Apple library. So it had been until this past week that you could rent a movie or purchase a movie or TV show in the Apple TV app on the Google TV and Android TV devices like the Google Chromecast, and you could purchase it right there on your Google device. But as Apple does, Google actually charges a 30% transaction fee for purchases made through their platforms. And so I guess Apple got tired of paying that 30% and you can no longer rent directly through Apple on those Google hardware devices. You can still access your purchase history and you can access, I think maybe you can access a rental if you do it. I'm not entirely sure. But I thought it was interesting that Apple pulled out of ability to purchase on Google's platforms. Mm. And I'm, I might check real quick as a William waxes poetically about something related to this topic. <laughs> but I'm curious if, I, I don't think you can actually rent Google TVs and movies through Apple TV. So I'm going to check to see if there's actually a, a, a feature Goodness. there. But uh, 
Well, William, what do you think? All these walled gardens, conflicting leather. I have no problem whatsoever with uh, Apple charging 30%, Google charging 30%. I remember in the days when you used to go to shops and things and the cut that the shop, the delivery people, the retail, everything, got, the creators would get a lot less than 70% of whatever it is. So no problem with that at all. But I do find it funny that Apple pulled out of this after everybody's been complaining about it uh, charging. Yes, so I'm not sure that was waxed. That was lyrical. It just wasn't long enough. Have you found out the answer? It was a perfect length. I have found out and I'm on an Apple TV right now. And if you go to the YouTube app, there is a movies and shows section, but all of the ones that you would have to pay for say preview only. And there is not a way to rent or buy those movies here in the YouTube app on Apple TV. So let's be honest, Apple was really just making the feature parody between Apple TV and Google TV devices where you can't buy or rent Google movies and shows on Apple TV and now you can't rent or buy Apple TV and movies on Google devices. Mm -hmm. You can still access purchased Google movies on Apple TV. If you go to the YouTube app, I mean, makes sense. I don't know. I don't think it's it's going to be a big deal for, for most people. But I don't know if you're super upset about this. Tweet at us. We'd love to hear it. Also, last thing before we get to the Mac Studio and Studio Display, it was actually the five-year anniversary of Apple acquiring the Workflow app and team. This was just this past week. It's been five years. Goodness. Matthew Casanelli, he's been on the show multiple times. He was on that original Workflow team that then worked for Apple for a time as they acquired him. Some of that workflow team is still there. Workflow became shortcuts, if you remember the history. And so that's the shortcuts we have today is because of that workflow team. So I am glad they Aqua hired that team. I'm glad to see what shortcuts is, hoping that there are still some bug fixes and improvements (laughs) over the short term. But I'm very excited to see what Apple does with shortcuts at WWDC this year. How shortcuts been for you, especially on the Mac, William? I know you use it a bunch. Uh, Surprisingly good. See, I hear lots of horror stories, and maybe I just haven't done as many of them as I might, but all the ones I've carried over from my iPhone to the Mac have been... I mean, they all run... I've got things that do various regex stuff on text, so some of it is um, calling other apps to do things. Yeah, it all seems fine. I get very mixed up over things like on the Mac, you have the shortcuts thing, and you can drag a shortcut into what will become the menu bar version of it. But then sometimes you lose it from a folder on iOS at the same time. So I've given up putting anything anywhere. I just run them raw and search for them when I need them. But on the other hand, um, there's an extension to Alfred that if I just type SC space, it'll offer the first 10 shortcuts in my list. So as long as they're somewhere near the top, I have quick access still and love it. I'm astonished it's five years though. I liked workflow and I was afraid very much that it was going to go away, that Apple had subsumed the team and we'd never see the same functionality. But we do. It's it's getting better and better. It is. You know, there was another acquisition like that, which was Dark Sky, which was my favorite weather app Mm. for iPhone. Apple acquired Dark Sky, integrated Dark Sky features into the weather app. But that was a situation where I think you kind of lost a little bit. It still has like notifications for precipitation, even like up to the hour. And I think it's been fairly accurate, but things like the, the maps and stuff, I feel like was implemented a little better in the dark sky app when it was standalone. Not, not always do you get everything that the previous app had and more, but thankfully shortcuts was that. And because it's an Apple product now, they can put integrations in there that they would not normally allow from a third-party app. So, yes, excited for the future of shortcuts. 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Coda.io. You know what's great? Being able to work from anywhere. I really enjoy working remotely. I just need my laptop and a decent Wi-Fi connection. But what's not so great is when your team is spread out across the country and it's hard to get them on the same page, focusing on the same tasks and get organized. That's why I'm a big fan of Coda.io. I've used a lot of project management software and platforms in the past, literally dozens. I've tried them all, tried to implement them, and Coda is one of the best. It's beautifully designed, it's easy to use, and it works everywhere. Coda is endlessly customizable and it's connected. There are templates for anything and everything, whether it's a product roadmap, remote onboarding, tracking products, meeting notes, you name it, Coda has it. Coda adapts to growing teams and changing strategies. It can help change how you view information depending on what you need to do with it. And most importantly, Coda seamlessly integrates with the tools you need and already use. Everything in Coda is synced, so you make an update to a table and it automatically shows up everywhere. No more relying on copying and pasting important projects or just emailing documents back and forth that could get lost in the ether. Your team can operate on the same information and collaborate the way you want to quickly and efficiently. With Coda, you can solve for just about anything. And right now, you can get started having your team all working together on the same page for free. Head over to coda.io slash Apple Insider. That's C-O-D-A dot I-O to get started for free. Coda.io slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Coda for sponsoring this episode and our good friends at Truebill. Guys, you've probably heard about Truebill before, but if you have not tried it yet, let me encourage you. Truebill that can help you keep track of all those subscriptions you have coming out, maybe charging your cards or your bank accounts. It can help you cancel them. They'll cancel them for you. Yes, you heard that right. They can help cancel those subscriptions. And most importantly, they'll notify you if the price ever changed. Honestly, that's what sold me on Truebill because when I started using it, I pay for a storage unit and I pay monthly for it. It's hitting my credit card. And one day I got a notification from Truebill saying that monthly subscription, it went up, it got more expensive. And I got notified by Truebill before my storage company. And that said, all right, Truebill, I need you to let me know about everything. And you're going to be my subscription concierge, if you will. So whether you simply forgot about your subscriptions or you no longer want some of those streaming services you signed up for, Truebill can help with all of that. Typically, it saves people $720 a year. And because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts. Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. That's right. Your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million users and helps save them over $100 million. Jennifer B. wrote in and said that her family has saved over $587 a year on unnecessary subscriptions. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Go right now. Truebill, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L, Truebill dot com slash Apple Insider, and it could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Truebill for sponsoring this episode. All right, well, here we are. Mac Studio and Studio Display. Right. No, no. Uh, hang on, hang on. I've been waiting for this bit. Submit. Right, hang on. Right, can open. I've been waiting mm. for this. Give me everything. Yeah. First of all, did you did you get a, either of these? Just out of curiosity. No, they're not available in blue. So I just wrote no, that right. instantly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, I want to highlight, you should definitely check out Max Tech, the YouTube channel. They did a teardown of the M1 Ultra Mac Studio the day it was delivered, like March 18. So incredible work doing that teardown so quickly on the day of. Teared it all the way down to the M1 Ultra chip. And it was was very impressive. It was fascinating to see all the internals 
one of which being a removable SSD, which we'll get to in a second. So that MaxTech video, very interesting. I fix it, did their typical teardown of every Apple device. You know, they do an in-depth teardown every time there's new hardware. Their teardown, again, revealed many of the same things as MaxTech. And I'll also link in the show notes, Mike Worthley at Apple Insider did the review of the M1 Ultra Mac Studio. And I'll get to some of his thoughts on the pros and cons, but he did, you know, like 4,000 plus word review, very in-depth and detailed performance, benchmarks, comparisons. So check that out for sure on uh, appleinsider.com. But I got mine also on launch day. I got the M1 Max version, not the M1 Ultra, because I mean, I'm not doing 3D modeling and science, you know, machine learning and all that. So, you know, the M1 Ultra would have been nice, but the cost difference, it was significant, you know. So I went with the M1 Max. Also, because I wanted to get 64 gigs of unified memory and I wanted to get a two terabyte SSD. And so doing that on the Max model is more economical, we'll say, than doing it on the M1 Ultra. But took it out of the box. It is definitely weighty. You know, it is a Mac Mini that's like three times as tall. I'm actually, I'm looking at a Mac Mini and the Mac Studio right now in front of me. I have both. Uh, The Mac Mini kind of acts as my home server and sometimes Homebridge stuff. So looking at them both, you know, it is definitely tall the Mac Studio, but man, the port situation is ideal on this Mac Studio. I actually was able to get rid of one of my Thunderbolt docks. I had an OWC Thunderbolt dock, which is what was connecting my laptop when I would dock it to Ethernet, to uh, external hard drive, and a couple other things. I was able to totally remove that from my setup. So no more Thunderbolt dock there. I almost got away with not using any Thunderbolt docks. I was able to connect and people were asking. So, you know, the Mac Studio on the back has four Thunderbolt ports. In those ports, I have my LG Ultrafine display, number one. I have my Sound Devices Mix Pre 3. It's my audio interface. So that's the second Thunderbolt port. I have a Blackmagic ATEM Mini Pro, and that's the third Thunderbolt port. And then fourth, I had an external drive, but I actually had two drives that I wanted to be able to connect sometimes and not have to like disconnect and connect that one port on the back of the Mac Studio all the time. So I did keep my CalDigit Elements Hub, which has one Thunderbolt out and three in. So it basically adds two more Thunderbolt ports on the Mac Studio. And so I kept that dock and used it to connect those two hard drives. And so I could have just gone with the ports on the Mac Studio and been pretty good, but I kept that one just to have a little more flexibility. And then the two USB-A ports, which I'm very grateful for those, my Stream Deck was still USB-A, so my Stream Deck is in one of those USB-A ports. And then I also had a dongle for the MX Master Mouse, MX3, I think. And I don't use it often, but when I do, I like to you know, just have the dongle in there. I don't have to worry about Bluetooth. And so I put that in the other USB-A port. So all the ports, except the HDMI port, are full. Headphones, I got my headphones in there. So works great. Love the ports. Been using the SD card slot a lot for video footage. And so that's really helpful to just have on there. Don't have to worry about a dock or some USB hub. And then the USB-C ports on the front are actually really convenient to connect like my magic trackpad, magic mouse, and magic keyboard when I need to charge those every once in a while. I don't have to leave them plugged in so the front still looks clean. But when I do need to connect them, they're right there on the front and it's very helpful. I did actually get a magic keyboard with touch ID. I had not had one of those previously. And now that I have a nice Mac desktop, I wanted the ability to use touch ID on that desktop. And so I went with the compact touch ID magic keyboard, not the new black and aluminum one with the number keypad, because I don't really use number keypads. 
Find one with the smaller one. It's also $50 cheaper. It's 150 as opposed to 200. And I do really enjoy the Touch ID having it right there. The Apple Watch confirmation is good for unlocking and things like that, but that Touch ID on the keyboard is very nice. Do you have one of those Touch ID Magic keyboards, William? Yeah, I I have the Touch ID on the uh, MacBook Pro, and I really like it. And I am tempted to get it for the Mac, but I actually do have the extended keyboard with the numeric keypad, and I use so many keyboard maestro keystrokes now that use those extra keys that oh. I'd probably have to go for the bigger one. And that's two hundred. Yeah, bucks. I mean, I fancy it, and yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I could put that to something else. But it's calling to me. It's calling. <laughs> yeah, if you like the number pad, yeah, you have to another 50 bucks to get the uh, black and aluminum one. I kind of wish they offered both colors on both sizes. You know, people who want the number keypad, if they want to get mm. the white keys and the aluminum, I feel like they should be able to get it. And I would love to have the option of a black keyboard with the Touch ID in the smaller version without the number keypad, but maybe one day. I would also love the colors that, you know, you can get color matched magic keyboard mice and trackpads with the imax and apple still does not sell those colors and it's like come on apple like don't make you have to buy an imac to get a blue keyboard i mean (laughs) it'd be kind of cool just to be able to have the colors but anyway so i love the love the ports love the hardware when it comes to fans you know in the teardowns that max tech and iFixit did and you could even see this in the event when apple announced it but a full half of the height in the Mac Studio are those fans. It's the cooling fans. And so that's, you know, the top part. The M1 Ultra version uses copper instead of aluminum heat sinks. And so it's like two pounds heavier. And everybody said who was on YouTube, like, yeah, it is noticeably heavier. So the fans, Hmm. some people have said that they are hearing the fans regularly. I have heard the fans, especially when I'm exporting like a lengthy video. I've heard the fans spin up. And so, yes, I hear them. They are still very quiet and they do not bother me. And again, it's not it's not constant for me. I really don't hear them unless I'm I'm doing some video work. Fan noise, I don't think is a big deal. Uh, people may vary if you have super hearing and, and the fan bothers you, but uh, not for me. That's not been an issue. I will say when it comes to performance, it is very fast, obviously, in most things. The one place that I would really notice the performance difference is in Final Cut and on rendering videos. I have noticed renders, I go through compressor. I send all my Final Cut projects through compressor. So I have some specific presets and stuff that I do in there. That is very fast. Rendering is definitely faster than my M1 Pro, MacBook Pro. But while editing in Final Cut, I have actually noticed a lot of beach balls where it'll just kind of freeze for a minute. And I'm only dealing with like one multicam clip that has two 4K videos in it. And my M1 Pro, MacBook Pro did not beach ball as often as this does. And so I have a feeling that there's some software optimizations that need to be done, maybe in Final Cut, maybe on the operating system of the Mac Studio as a whole. And I, and I think there's something going on underneath the hood because I really don't think, even though I got the M1 Max version, I mean, it really should not be beach balling as often as it did. Uh, Sam Cole, who does the iUpdate channel on YouTube, also tweeted that he's been noticing a lot of beach balls. So that's a little concerning, but I'm going to wait and see what software updates come out in the near future. And I believe it will resolve it because I really don't think it's supposed to function that way. Obviously, rendering times much faster, exporting all that is very nice. Yeah, I really like it. All the teardowns did see that there's an SSD that is removable inside the Mac Studio. iFixit actually gave this thing a 6 out of 10 repairability, which for Apple devices isn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some, yeah. some Apple devices get like a zero on repairability. But uh, this one, you can take it apart yourself and put it back together. Max Tech put back there together M1 Ultra and it works fine. But there is an SSD that is removable 
inside the Mac Studio, but apparently it's not something where you can put in a larger SSD card and it work. Like it is a very, <laughs> I guess, specifically tuned <laughs> slot for an SSD. Uh, maybe it's something that Apple will use in right. So you could take it out and in, in, you could take out the SSD and, and enjoy it in some way, and then put it back. <laughs> that sounds like that's very useful. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to admire it, you know, frame it or something. Yeah, but yeah. it's probably more for Apple's Genius Bar and repairability on their side. Oh, does, right. does not right. seem to be something right. that users will be able to manipulate or change or anything like that. So overall, I really like it. There are some quirks like that beach balling in Final Cut that I would like to see resolved soon, probably in a software update. But uh, overall, I'm you know, going to keep it, obviously, going to use it for a while. It's going to be my podcasting video production machine. And uh, we'll do a long-term review in a few months to see how it's been performing. But William, do you have any questions for me on the Mac Studio? Oh, so many questions. One technical, one practical one. There's no chance that you've somehow run out of space in the, the drive. Because uh, Final Cut Pro for me starts falling over when I'm running out of space because of temporary files and things like that. Well, that's a good question. I keep all my footage on an external one terabyte SSD. It's, I've been doing that for the past couple of years and have not had any issue with beach balling. And I'll edit on my MacBook Pro right. using that same SSD. It's a Thunderbolt yeah. 4 SSD drive from OWC. So I don't think so. And and the hard the SSD in my Mac Studio has 1.8 terabytes free right now. So I don't think uh, I don't think it's that. Yeah. So that would be no. Okay. Yeah, that'd be no. I don't think you don't, so. You just there's something you don't sound overwhelmed by it. Um, is it just kind of okay? Yeah, you know, I don't have the kind of workflows that would really feel the M1 Ultra benefit. You know, I'm not doing 8K footage. Mm. I'm not doing four cameras with 4K 10-bit footage. You know, I'm doing, I got one 4K 10-bit video from my Sony a7 IV, and I have another not 10-bit stream from my Sony a6400 camera. Honestly, like editing is really fast on my MacBook Pro. I like the reduced render times. So when I, I don't have to sit there and wait for it to export or, you know, if I'm going to upload that file for someone to use, I don't have to wait too much. But I am enthused that it will be able to sit on my desk. I don't have to unplug and plug in my MacBook Pro. I don't have to dock and undock. It can just sit there, have everything connected to it. My Ethernet is directly connected, my audio interface, my video switcher. And I don't have to worry about weird, is my Thunderbolt dock acting funny? Is stuff being disconnected? Because like one thing I have noticed, I use my Blackmagic A10 Mini Pro connected via USB-C Thunderbolt to the Mac. And previously it was connected through a hub. And I noticed that sometimes Skype and other applications like Zoom wouldn't see the Blackmagic right away and I would have to unplug and plug it back in. Assumed it was because it was going through that dock. But I will say now that it's connected to the Mac Studio directly with a Thunderbolt cable one-to-one, that I have not had those issues. I have not had to unplug and replug it in. Right. Skype, every other app recognizes it right away. I don't have to restart anything. So that alone has been a very welcome improvement, I will say. My audio device as well. Every once in a while, it got a little funny mm. and I had to you know, turn it off and back on again just to get it connected back to the MacBook Pro that I've been docking and undocking and not having to deal with that is very, very helpful. So yeah, I'm not like super enthused, but I 
like it. I really like it. So that last bit about not having to plug, that reminds me of uh, an argument I once heard in favour of Windows, that it, uh, with Windows, uh, at least you got a, a, a little break a few times a day when you could restart the machine to get out of a problem, go have a coffee, talk to friends, <laughs> see the outside <laughs> air. And with a Mac, you just kept on and on working. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is the kind of review that I, I like. I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, Mike Worthley's review on Apple Insider, which is, uh, I think, the best all-round Mac Studio piece uh, of them all. I mean, you know, he tests them under secret laboratory situation. Everything's so detailed. It's so good. Uh, but for me, as a kind of creator who doesn't really follow specifications and things, um, it's when you hear somebody using it to do something that I find the most useful. Like, uh, what you've just said, but also there's a, a musician here in the UK called Mary Spender uh, who has a YouTube channel and she's done quite a short video on the Mac Studio, but it feels much more informative to me than uh, I ever get from you know benchmarks and specifications. This is what it was good for for her. This is why she's using it. And I just find it, well, it made me want one. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, mm, well, and, that's not good, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and the, and the question that I have to ask myself now is, do I need a MacBook Pro and alongside my 12.9 inch iPad Pro, which is alongside my iPad mini? Yeah. I feel at this point, I have a little bit of device overlap mm. and there's a few things like sometimes I like to do Final Cut on the go on my laptop. And sometimes I have to record a podcast not at my desk. Those are the two things that if my iPad Pro could do it, I might let go of my MacBook Pro. I might not even need it. I mean, that's really the two things I do with it. Also, some website development with Squarespace. It's still not good on, on iPad. But I feel like having a 12.9-inch iPad Pro and a 14-inch MacBook Pro is, a, oh, is too much overlap. It's a luxury. You know, I love being able to just choose whatever device I want in the moment. Yeah. But this Mac Studio, it's it's my desk machine, so I don't need to dock my MacBook Pro anymore. And now I'm like, I, I kind of hope either Apple updates iPad OS and releases a new iPad Pro in the near future that will let me, you know, put those two devices together, or maybe I go with an 11 inch iPad Pro if that gets an XDR screen and not have both a 12.9 inch and a Mini. So I feel a little bit of like. I don't know. There's some lineup obscurity in Apple's hardware choices. So we'll see what happens. This would all bother me a lot if I was setting out to buy each of these things. But since you've already got them all, just, <laughs> yes, use them. Need them. It's fine. Absolutely. I, I genuinely love, you can just reach to whichever is the nearest machine and get on with whatever you were doing. I mean, there are exceptions, like you say, but most of the time it is which is the nearest device, which is the right device. And I don't tend to think about it. I automatically know which one I'm going to have uh, totally unconsciously. And I love that the Apple ecosystem lets you do that. So relish those machines you've got and uh, and use them all to the fullest. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say. And that's, I, and I do, and it's funny, like, when I watch something at night, if I'm just sitting in bed and I want to watch a show like Severance, I want to watch that on my iPad Pro. Mm. The screen is beautiful. I could watch it on my MacBook Pro, Yeah. but pulling out my laptop might make me fall down a rabbit hole of emails and work. Yes. And so I'd rather have my iPad Pro be my entertainment device in the evening. And to edit a podcast, I choose iPad Mini because the iPad 12.9 inches is too heavy. And I love the mini size for that. Mm. But if I want to do some focused writing work and research, and I don't want to be distracted, but I do need to get work done in that focused mode, I choose the 12.9 inch iPad Pro again, because the nature of that OS helps me focus a little more. 
And now when I'm at my desk, it's to record a podcast or edit a video. And it's clear. I use the Mac Studio for those things. And so I totally identify like there, if you have the luxury to have these different devices, like you find very specific use cases for each one. And you prefer doing things on one and not another. And now you have an iPad Pro and a MacBook Pro. What are some things that you choose one over the other for? Well, without uh, an obvious logical reason for it, uh, there's a script I'm writing and I'm working on from about 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. most weekdays. And I will write that exclusively on my MacBook Pro. It's on the iPad, it's on my Mac Mini, it's on my iPhone, but I set aside those two hours and I work on that machine only. And it's like that script belongs on that device. Mm -hmm. I remember once uh, I had to do a script for a theater, was finishing a book, uh, Doctor Who radio drama, deadline moved around and it was so busy, I would do one in one room with one device and one in another room with another device. (laughs) And if I had to make a decision about the book, I'd have to go to the living room with the device in my hand to make that decision (laughs) and then come back to another room. So I think suddenly we're going from device overload to psychotic, really. But, you know, (laughs) which of us hasn't done this? And also like shortcuts... Shortcuts are a large part of my workflow. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. still function differently on the Mac than they do on iPad. And there's a shortcut that I use every week for the show notes for this podcast. And I prefer, and it works better, to use that shortcut on the iPad. And so even if I'm sitting here at my Mac studio with all the power, the power of the sun in the palm of my hands, I will reach for <laughs> my iPad mini to run that one shortcut just because it it works better. And you you find those things. And hopefully, again, like, Maybe the next WWDC, the next wave of OS updates, it will make those decisions easier or harder. I'm not sure, you know, which device to use in what scenario, but mm. I'm glad Apple makes them all. And now knowing what each does and how they feel to use, I, there are clear use cases for each one. So, yes. yeah, very cool. Oh, nuts. I have done a stupid thing. I could have talked you out of your MacBook Pro or your <laughs> Mac Studio, one of them. One of them. You could have sent them to me. That's I would right. have graciously accepted it, and I've blown it. Okay. Now, next time. Next time. you got to think, you plan ahead to dissuade me. I do want to just quickly touch on the studio display. I do not have one in my possession. I did go to an Apple store to check one out. Have you seen any of them in person, William, the studio display? No. Okay. What did you think? Well, man, this is, seems like one of the most divisive Apple devices of recent history. Like there are people who say this is not worth it. It You should not spend your money on it. Almost as if Apple is holding them at gunpoint to buy it and they're just so mad about it. And then there are others that are like, I love this display. It's what I've been wanting from Apple for years. And I think it's interesting that for a long, long time, people said, just give us the 27-inch iMac display as a standalone device, and we will buy it. That's literally what people said. Like yes. all of the tech pundits, a lot of people in the Apple community, that's literally what they said for the last six years. Apple has done literally that, and now people are very mad that they have done it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, people speculated on the price that they were like, oh, we paid two to $3,000 for something like that, still cheaper than the XDR. And the studio display came out at 1600 and people are mad about that too. And it's like, we were speculating that it would be probably more expensive. And, uh, and people are mad about it. And people are mad about the power cable, how it's not removable, but it kind of is if you yank it hard enough. There's a video of Linus Tech Tips on YouTube yanking the power cable out. Very disconcerting video. Do, do not try to yank it out yourself. Mm. There's a special tool that Apple Geniuses will have. There's weird things like there's 64 gigs of SSD storage on the studio display for whatever reason, like who knows why. Yes. 
So, you know, there's some weird things about the display for sure. But when I looked at it in the Apple store, all I had to do was tilt that screen a little bit and the precise movement, the sturdiness, the hardware design was all communicated in that one tilt. And I was like, this is a very nice display. And if I didn't already have a good display at home, I have the LG 4K Ultrafine. If I didn't have that, this would be the display I would want. All right. And yes, it doesn't it doesn't have promotion. It doesn't have the same HDR features like my MacBook Pro, but neither does this LG Ultrafine, and neither does a lot of monitors out there. A lot of monitors claim to have HDR support, but it's pretty lackluster and it doesn't look great. And no, the studio display is not the XDR. But I think you could clearly tell that because the studio display is 1600 and the XDR is 6000 with a stand. Yes. And so it is a different product for a different price range, but it is still desirable, but you don't have to buy it. (laughs) You don't have to use it with the Mac Studio. You could buy any other display you want. And yeah, I don't think, you know, it's okay. But if you want an Apple made display that has beautiful hardware design, that's very sturdy and looks really good. You know, no one complained about the display in the 27-inch iMac for the last seven years, and it's still really good. That's the display, and it looks really good. So, again, I have a good display at home. I'm not going to upgrade just yet, but if the funds allow and it's there's no other better option at the end of this year, I might get one because it's a really cool-looking display. It has beautiful hardware design, and it would meet my needs more than enough. So, I don't know. Those are my thoughts on it. What do you think, William? You've seen some of the controversy. Yes, I'm... Uh... The thing is, I, I have this large monitor, uh, as I say, the 49-inch one. I know that this looks better. I mean, the resolution and things. Uh, I would swap to it uh, if I could, but uh, where in the world would I even store this giant widescreen monitor if I were able to swap over? And I know I'd miss the width. You know, never mind the width, feel the quality and all of that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with not being drawn to it. Um, yeah. But I hope I don't see one in an Apple store soon. <laughs> As I unfortunately saw a Pro Display XDR, and that wrecked everything for me. (laughs) They are beautiful, yeah. That's the other thing. I have actually, I don't think I've seen a Pro Display XDR in person. I can't remember if I ever saw one in an Apple store, but I don't look at one every day. I look at this LG Ultrafine. Mm. I mean, I have beautiful XDR screens on my iPad Pro and MacBook Pro, so I do see those. Mm. But the display I look at every day at my desk, this LG Ultrafine, it's fine. It does what I need it to do. The hardware design is kind of meh, but it's what it is. But compared to what I have, the studio display looks great. Compared to the XDR, if you have an XDR sitting on your desk, of course, yeah, the studio display is not going to look great (laughs) because it is not a $6,000 monitor. It's a $1,600 monitor. So I don't know. It's just incredible to me, the divisiveness. You know, people saying Apple should have done more. Like, yeah, yes, (laughs) Apple could have done more and they would have charged $2,500 or $3,000 for it. And so they chose not to do more and they chose to make it a $1,600 monitor, which is, again, what a lot of people were asking for for a long time. <laughs> so I just think it's, it's very ironic. But anyway, listeners, if you got a studio display, I would love to know what you think of it, if you like it, if, if it's worth the money to you personally. It just it suddenly occurs to me that Apple should have named the studio display better because LG, they just put the word fine in the middle <laughs> of the name and we all know. They? Yeah, so. they should have called it the studio. Okay, studio. It's good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'd have bought that. Yeah, it's a studio good. <laughs> it's not excellent. It's studio yeah. good. Studio. Yeah. Well, you'll see William and my Twitter handles in the show notes. You can support the show 
on Apple Podcasts or Patreon.com slash Apple Insider. $5 a month gets you an ad-free version. And keep those five-star reviews coming. I love seeing those. And we'll continue to give those shout-outs. So thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you next time.